And now, coming to you live from the Waldorf Room, the international home of Vegemite, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with extra special guest Sophia Samatar on the Coot Street Podcast! And I just want you to stretch that out a little bit more. <laughs> so, uh, we gotta so Sophia, else. can you explain that Vegemite reference? Because I think... <laughs> was what was that somebody told me it was cheryl morgan wasn't it cheryl morgan that was cheryl morgan our our, our good friend told you told not to... me on twitter i said that i was going to do the coot street podcast and she said something about don't ask about the vegemite well, you never and i said okay i won't <laughs> and then it kind of yeah it turned into a thing Interesting. right but at any rate congratulations on your new position um we wanted the congratulations on a stranger in a laundry, which, as I know, you I, I, I admire enormously. And congratulations on having your story, The the Honey Bear, in uh, Rich Horton's year's best anthology. Yes. Yeah, thank you very much. So this is a good year for you. It is a good year. It's a, It's been an extremely busy year, but a very good one. What I want to start off with, though, before we get to those, is when we were talking and you and I talked, well, we talked during the Locust interview earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And you had a story which, uh, as a reader of science fiction and fantasy and all the various things that are allied with, with those genres, you had this interesting experience, as I recall, of having read it quite a bit as a kid and then kind of drifted away from it. And then you were off in the Sudan and Egypt for like more than a decade. Mm-hmm. And, and you, said, you said at some point when you started looking at it again, it was like a whole new field. Like it wasn't all what you'd left behind 10 years earlier. Yes. Absolutely. And I, you know, in talking to people since then, it sort of seems like maybe there there really was some kind of sea change or something happened in the field. But what ha- when I was experiencing it, what I thought was, well, I'm just, and I think this is partially true, I thought I'm just so out of touch, you know, mm-hmm. being in Egypt, not mm-hmm. having um, access to a lot of books that were that were coming out, I thought, well, I just have no clue what's going on. I think that was partially true, but I also think um, that maybe there was some kind of change because um, I started hearing about people like Jeff Vandermeer, um, Kelly Link, um, Catherine Valenti, and reading bits and pieces of their stuff. And then we'd when we'd come home to the U.S. on vacation, mm-hmm. we'd go and buy their book, and it just blew me away. I, I think that's fascinating. I think a lot of us have had periods, uh, Jonathan maybe not, but I certainly <laughs> had a period when I didn't read much science fiction when I was in graduate school. And I came back, and uh, this was much longer ago. I didn't, I didn't have the sense you had, but it's a kind of Rip Van Winkle scenario where there's this field, which is lively, and it's going along okay, but then you kind of go away, and you come back, and there are as you mentioned, uh, scores of, of new writers, new kinds of writing, new kinds mm-hmm. of stories like Kelly Link stories. And that must have been just a sense of like discovering the field all over again. It was. It was absolutely um, wonderful. And, you know, it was it was partly discovering people who had emerged during the time that I wasn't reading um, SF, mm-hmm. but it was also partly getting online and then connecting with things that had been there that I just had completely missed, things that I hadn't read. And there are still a lot of things that I come across and I'm like, oh, you know, 
this has been around for a while and I just never read it. It looks really interesting. So, so it's partly also just a difference in, um, in access to information. What did you read before you um, disappeared from American civilization for a decade? <laughs> well, I would say I, I kind of I disappeared from SF, I would say, before I disappeared from the U.S. Um, okay, because so it was fair. really, yeah, it was, it was I, I read um, and adored and still adore um, Tolkien, Le Guin, Mervyn Peake, um, those are, you know, those those were the the books that were sort of the main pillars of my life as a reader uh, until I was 15. And then I just sort of exhausted my local Walden books. You know, I was going up and down the shelf and I was looking for something that was like those books and I wasn't finding it. I wasn't finding things that interested me. So uh, then I decided, oh, you know, I know all the good books that there are in science fiction. Yeah. And so I just and I was reading other things. I was reading, you know, Joyce and, and Faulkner and Hemingway and Virginia Woolf and just started reading completely different things. So it had been a really long time then before I started so, about... Well, the, you know, it's, it's interesting because even even today you're not going to find much like Mervyn Peake. No, I guess not. Although you can keep, you know, you can keep hoping. This is the other thing that fascinates me. Jonathan, did you have something? Well, no, I was just going to say that, I mean, I, I see it more in some areas of science fiction. I think I see the influence of Peake in, you know, Mike, Mike, Mike Harrison and in um, China Mieville rather than in fantasy well, at true. the moment more, I think. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm, that makes sense. China Mieville can get, has Peaky in moments too. Is Peaky on an yeah. adjective? It is now, okay. It is now. Um, so, so here's the other thing was fasc- which fascinated me about reading A Stranger in a Laundry, and, and it fascinated me even more when I found out how you wrote it, uh, because, as I think I told you, this is one of those things that Small Beer sent to me with uh, a completely vanilla advanced reading copy. Nothing on it except the title and your name. No blurbs, no letter, just like, uh, which actually is the kind of thing I love getting, because that means I'm totally at sea here. I have to make what I can make out of this book without knowing anything about it or the author at all. Yeah. And then it turns out that you'd spent something like 10 years writing this entirely on your own without any writer's workshops, without having any contact with other writers, without really having any current contact with the field at all. Is that about what happened? That's about what happened. I mean, I would say there were two of us in our own um, writing and reading vacuum and that's me and my husband Keith Miller who um, has written two novels and his first novel The Book of Flying he wrote in Sudan in South Sudan at the same time that I was writing A Stranger in Alondria Um, and we had the books that were in our own library that we had brought with us which was you know one bookshelf of of books that was what we had to read so um, we did a lot of rereading, and we were reading a lot of the same things, and we read each other's manuscripts. But yeah, that was it. Other than that, there was no. I didn't. I didn't have any connection to other writers at all. I didn't. Um, most of my friends didn't even know that I was writing anything. Um, I had people, you know, that I've been quite close to, and they go, "You wrote a novel?" You know, nobody had any idea. We should probably explain what this period of not being away because you taught you were taught writing as a second language you and her husband both in Sudan in northern Sudan during the war 
and then for it another... It was actually sub- Southern Sudan. We were... Oh, you- Keith had been in Northern Sudan before uh, we got married. And then when the two of us went, we went to Gambia, which is in South Sudan, um, the far southwest, so close to Central African Republic and uh, Democratic Republic of Congo. Which is not what most people at that time would have thought a safe place to be. <laughs> well, no. Safe. You know, it's... It, it's it's such a relative term. It's such a complex thing. There's so many bits and pieces involved in it. Um, I mean, well, in the sense that there was an active war around. That, you know, my my dad was was really scared that I was going uh, to work in South Sudan. This country is at war, and you know, he was so worried that something was going to happen to me. Now, I'm from New Jersey. My brother at the time was living with my parents in South Orange, New Jersey, and he was going to school at Rutgers University in Newark, where my dad works. And going to campus on the bus one morning, somebody opened fire on the bus and um, nobody was killed, thankfully, but some people were very seriously injured and my brother was shot in the leg. You know, I'm going to my dad, you know, he lives in your house. Mm. Well, that's true. Not, not me. And I'm in the, you know, I'm supposedly in the dangerous war-torn country. So, you know, it's just, it's hard to judge sometimes where the safe places are. That's a good, good point. Uh, now, your father himself is, this is the other thing. This is what, I mean, every time we talk, I'm, I, I make you tell your life story over again because it's so, <laughs> I don't know, science fictional. Your, your dad is Somalian, uh-huh. but your mom, your mom was a Mennonite. Yes. And, you basically went to Mennonite schools. Yes, I did. I went to uh, Mennonite High School in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and I went to Goshen College in Indiana, which is a Mennonite college. It sounds like the Mennonite part of your upbringing was sort of more dominant than the Somalian part. Um, I would say, yeah, certainly in terms of my education. I just, I, just as a, a quick footnote, uh, one, one of the novels which I... Uh, included in this Library of America thing of novels of the 50s was um, Lee Brackett's The Long Tomorrow. And Lee Brackett lived in uh, rural Ohio. She lived in Kinsman, Ohio, where there's a large Mennonite community. And basically the future society that she talks about, this post-apocalyptic society, is very heavily based on the Mennonites that she knew in um, Ohio. So you might want to look at that sometime. You know what? I read about that book somewhere, and I remember, you know, turning down the corner of the page in whatever book I was reading and saying, I need to look at this. <laughs> yeah, I should definitely look at that. Yeah, it's because it's, it's, when I start thinking about, well, when you start thinking about Mennonite science fiction, your list isn't going to be very long, is it? <laughs> it's not going to be very long, although, I don't know. I, I, um, I have read, I read a short story by uh, Rudy Weeb, who's a Canadian Mennonite writer, Mm-hmm. Um, and it's about, oh, it's, I read it a really long time ago, but I believe if I'm remembering correctly, it's something about, um, an angel, a, a fallen angel who's discovered in this like construction site or something. And I thought, Oh, <laughs> that's, that's kind of, you know, that's speculative fiction. That's, that's speculative fiction. Yeah. Well, here's the other thing you brought back. It seems to me, uh, and I'm just, I'm just pulling stuff out of what we talked about. Well, we talked in Wiscon also. Um, mm-hmm. And that is a lot of what you were reading, and I know what you were uh, writing your uh, thesis on in graduate school, are are what we could 
in the modern sense of the word, called speculative fiction writers that most of us here in the States have never heard of. Uh, Tayeb Sali, I think, was one. Lebanese writer. No, uh, Elias Khoury. Yes. Uh, Elias Khoury. Uh, and um, there was one that you'd mentioned mm -hmm. called Amber Planet by Mohammed oh. Rabi. Now, yes, yes. Uh, Mohammed Rabia. And it's actually, I um, when I went and looked into things more closely, I believe that the title would actually be Planet of Ambergris. Amber. Oh. Yes, rather than Amber. So this actually hasn't been translated. No, it hasn't. And I'm I'm still reading it. I started reading it before I moved from Wisconsin to California. And then in the move, I kind of laid it aside. Um, but uh, but I will definitely go back to it and finish it because I was really enjoying it. I guess my question is, having not only lived there, but having you know done your graduate work on uh, essentially, I guess, comparative literature, do you get a and, and and thinking of speculative fiction as we now think of it, which includes everything from I don't know Kelly Link and Caitlin Kernan to Richard Bowes and uh, Graham Joyce and so forth, that there's a lot of what we would call speculative literature that we just don't know about in the English-speaking world at all, but that seems to be a pretty lively tradition in the rest of the world. I think that's true. I think that's true. I also think that, um, you know, things become complicated in terms of definitions when you bring in something like, um, like magic realism, for example. Yeah. And then, you know, people are saying, well... Uh, there's a question of belief um, that tends to come into people's definitions, right? Where people are saying, well, if it's, if it's a completely made up, you know, somebody's doing world building, they're making up a yeah. made up world, mm -hmm. that's fantasy. But if, if, it's, if it's not that, if it has some connection to some sort of belief system that is active, then we have to call that something else. So I think that's also something that you know, it's a it's it's um, a line that's drawn between these different literary traditions. I'm not completely convinced by that line, to be honest. Um, but I can understand why people draw it. Well, okay, why do people draw it? I think people draw it because they don't want to um, make pronouncements about what other people believe. In other words, they don't want to take a book and say, this is fantasy, we include it in our genre of fantasy. And then, you know, find out that actually somebody else, you know, the person who wrote that book or the community in which that book was written takes those fantastical, apparently fantastical things very seriously and doesn't consider them, you know, just made up stuff. And maybe somebody would be offended if you call that book fantasy because it's actually, you know, an expression of belief and not a sort of imaginative play. So I think that's why people draw the line. I think it's drawn out of excellent intentions, but it- Or kind of, you know, a kind of cultural sensitivity that, uh, I mean, yeah, I've heard the argument made that, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of, the Lord of the Rings of magic realism is probably Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude. And hmm. one of the reasons that Latin American scholars I know don't like to talk about that as fantasy is because he's talking about a community you know, in Colombia that believes in all the things that happen in the story. Um, in other words, he's not creating a fantasy. He's reflecting a belief system that's actually real. Um, yeah. That's exactly, yeah, that's a, a much better and more concise expression of, of why people draw that line. Yes. 
But then when, when you were in Egypt and the Sudan, did you encounter what we would consider, I guess, you know, a, a, a fantasy kind of tradition in the sense of m making up non-realist stories for the purposes of interest, pleasure, amusement, rather than reflecting a cultural aspect in the way that we're talking about magic realism and like this? Well, yes. I mean, absolutely. But I, I guess I would also say that, you know, all stories reflect sure. cultural aspects, right? Yeah, so, sure. so that's again, that's where I, I, uh, I have trouble with that, with that division, which mm. seems to me, um, not arbitrary. I wouldn't call it an arbitrary division, but I'm not sure it's always a really useful one mm. because these are all, um, forms of, of, you know, storytelling and types of narrative that are expressing, um, things that are important to people regardless of of what sort of package it comes in. Yeah. I guess because one of, one of the things that's always interesting is trying to work out where, you know, there's a lot of pronouncements and analysis and discussion of what we consider to be you know, fantasy fiction or whatever else, and yet there are all these other traditions around the world of storytelling that are exempted from that when we refer to this shorthand as fantasy, and there's always that, that, that concern that that's actually, first of all, not at all meaningful, rather arrogant, rather dismissive and exclusive and unaware of what's happening in the, in, in the world around us, uh, mm -hmm. even if it does happen behind sort of a barrier of, of language at times that makes it difficult to uh, approach it differently. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think depending where you stand you yeah. can um, choose what you'd like to dismiss using that division. So, so in an academic context, for example, mm. um, you know, magic realism is, is regarded as being pretty interesting. It's certainly a lot more interesting than American genre fantasy. Sure. You know, then, then something's getting dismissed on the other side, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, that's, that's part of the problem. I think there's a, there's, there's a kind of literary snobbery involved, possibly on both sides. Um, because I know at least one writer who is uh, who's a Cuban science fiction writer, Diana Chaviano, and I don't know if you met her the year at ICFA. I don't know if she was there the, the, the year you were there. Oh, that was the other thing I forgot to congratulate you on is the Crawford Award. Yes. Um, but Diana published her first novel in English. She writes. She lives in Miami, but publishes in Spanish. And when her first novel was translated, um, and it's a fantasy novel. It's about a magical house that disappears and reappears in other neighborhoods. And it got very good reviews, all explaining very carefully, this is not a fantasy novel, this is magic realism. Right. And I got an email from Diana saying, I, it, it's, a, it's a fantasy novel. What's, <laughs> what's the problem here? Well, I, I guess to some degree, is it, up to, uh, is it up to us to make this distinction, or is it a question you have to sort of legitimately, openly ask of the person who is, is creating the work if they're actually still there to ask the question? Well, you know... That would be one way to go about it. I'm not, uh, ooh, how do I say this? I'm not that respectful of authors. That is not what I want to say. But um, it, <laughs> I do think that, you know, you, you write something and you don't, you don't own it in the same way anymore once it's, once it's out there in the world. And so I, I actually don't think that an author is always necessarily, you know, the final authority. I think, I think readers, um, readers are, are participants. Yeah. And they're part of it. 
I think also that authors uh, who are lucky enough to to be ghettoized in both opposite camps at the same time are lucky because then you've got, oh, here's a recent example, Nadia Korofor's Who Fears Death. As far as I know, a lot of people read that as magic realism. It's, 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 it's kind of, it, it involves African mythology. A lot of people read it as science fiction. Some people read it as fantasy. And if they all want to claim it, and if I were Nettie, I'd say, hey, if you want to buy it, fine, whatever you think it is. <laughs> I agree. I mean, if people are reading it, you know, there's, there is a certain bottom line there where you, you want your work to be read. You want it to be out there and, um, and to be meaningful to someone. So, you know, they can call it what they want to call it. Um, I, I do think there are contexts in which, you know, what people call things um, become important. But I also do think that there is definitely that bottom line for a writer. You want to be read. But the other question that comes to my mind, and this is really the most unfair question I've ever thought of to ask a writer on the <laughs> oh, podcast. <laughs> oh, lucky me. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, well, here, here's what I'm thinking. Somebody reads, let's say, Who Fears Death, and some of them are going to say, okay, there's more stuff, there's more African-based fantasy, and they can go in that direction. There's more post-apocalyptic science fiction, they can go in that direction. Somebody reads A Stranger in Alondria and says, I want to read more like that. What would you tell them to read? Ooh, that is a really interesting question. Um, possibly unfair, but totally yes, it's worth unfair. it. Um, because it's, it, what would I say? I mean, when I wrote the book, I mm -hmm. wrote it because I was not finding exactly what I wanted to read. Mm. So mm. I wrote it because at the time that I wrote it, I didn't feel that there was anything that was like what I was doing. Um, and again, that's because I was in South Sudan with no internet and not even any mail really. <laughs> so um, so that's you know how I could have that, that kind of, I guess a little bit arrogant perspective. But um, I thought to myself, I was definitely very much inspired by Gormenghast, by Mervyn Peake. Um, so I think maybe I would tell somebody to read Mervyn Peake if they were interested. Um, I have also had other people compare it, compare um, A Stranger in a Laundria to um, Samuel Delaney's, and I'm going to say it wrong. It's like Never Yon. Never Yon. I always say Never Yona. Is that, you know that, Jonathan? Yeah, yeah Never Yona, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yes. And I haven't read those but it's a series isn't it yes it is mm -hmm. uh -oh. well there is uh, there's a coming of age aspect to it and there is a, a um i because I, I, I don't know the answer to that question when i'm asking i mean one of the things as you know that fascinated me about a stranger in a laundry is it has a lot of the trappings of epic fantasy and never quite turn it turns into epic fantasy although there's a war brewing at the end of it but mm -hmm. it really has a lot to do with with education and with, with language and with what stories are for. Yes. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's basically an epic fantasy that has all the things that I like about epic fantasy, and it doesn't have the stuff that I don't like about epic fantasy. So it has, you know, the <laughs> cultures, it has the different languages, it has a map, it has, you know, it has journeys, it has, um, you know, a kind of quest, but... There's no magic, there's no battle, there's no dragon. Um, 
Yeah. Well, there's a ghost. There's a ghost. There's a ghost. It is a ghost story. It's a yeah. ghost story. And I think that's the other thing. It, 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 it's, I mean, what I liked about it and what I tend to like about novels um, that, that, that don't go where I expect them to go. And, uh, and the, minute, the minute I opened A Stranger in the Laundry, and I think it must have been in the arc I had because otherwise I wouldn't have it. I still don't have an actual copy of the book. There was that map, and I thought, okay, this is a map fantasy. We're gonna, <laughs> we're just gonna trundle across this map, and then the book will be over, or maybe there'll be several more volumes. Um, and then it turns out the map actually makes sense because you need to understand trade routes, you need to understand how this community is isolated from other communities. But the thing I will tell you, the thing that just struck me is the most. Um, well, there's a lot of really nice pieces in the book, but the the thing that struck me as being something I had not read before, I think, in context of fantasy was uh, Jevek, is that how you pronounce it? Jevik? I say Jevik, yeah. Jevik, but, no, readers are participants. Say it how you like. <laughs> well, well, Jevik is a young man whose father is, I think, a pepper merchant. Uh, is not unaware of letters. He's not unaware of language. He's not under, unaware of math. But he's unaware that they can be used for anything other than settling accounts. Yes. And that struck me as almost Dickensian. That struck me as a kind of moment of revelation that I suppose to some extent happens in all of our lives where these you know, letters can be put together to form stories. And there's this sense of just sudden empowerment that he has um, at that moment uh, before he goes off um, to Alondria that it just I thought that was just a transformative moment in the novel. Yeah, I, I mean, that moment came directly out of my own experience of learning to read Arabic, um, which I did for the first time in graduate school, where, mm -hmm. you know, it's so painful. If you're a reader, you know, you love reading so much. It's where you get your pleasure. You, you can't look at a word and not read it, you know. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're looking at these letters and it just, it's so hard and you're sounding out words and it's just awful and your favorite thing has now become your least favorite thing because mm -hmm. it's horrible. Mm -hmm. And then one day it flows and it's almost like, you know, you're riding a bike for the first time and if you notice I'm riding a bike, then you fall off. So you can't, mm -hmm. but if, if you can just get into that headspace and just go, then you're reading and it's amazing. Now, did you see that happening with your students in Sudan and Egypt? Um, well, I taught students, actually, I did teach one class that was a really, really beginning class where we started mm -hmm. sort of uh, from ABC. Um, and, you know, I didn't stay with them long enough to see it happen, but I mostly taught people who, um, who, had, who had some experience with English. So I was teaching, you know, in Egypt, I was teaching upper level uh, courses. I was teaching conversation courses to adults, to university students. In Sudan, I was teaching high school. So I had a whole range um, of students. Um, but I would say, yeah, you know, I, it would have been great to have somebody be like, oh, I just started reading right now. But no, <laughs> I, got to, I got to experience it, but not witness it. The other thing you mentioned, which I think was fascinating, um, you remember telling us what the most successful English story that you taught, I think, in the Sudan was? Frankenstein. That's amazing. I think that's terrific. These, these and, and you said it was some... It was Go ahead. Frankenstein was a hit. 
Yeah, my students in Sudan absolutely loved that book. And of course, it was a, a heavily abridged version um, that I had bought at a secondhand bookstore in Nairobi. Um, and I took it with me because I didn't have any books, actually, when I went. Mm -hmm. And I was told that I was teaching high school English and there weren't any books. So um, I kind of cobbled together a poetry course for the first semester until I could um, get out and go to Nairobi and buy something to do the next for the next term. Mm -hmm. Was, I found was it just copy of But it was it was it was essentially Mary Shelley's prose just cut down to a much shorter story, right? It was cut down. It was so cut down that it almost wasn't really Mary Shelley's prose. Oh, I okay. mean, it it was the bare bones of that story. Well, the bare bones of the story are all we need to the point I want to get at, which is that see, science fiction is universal. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. I'm not sure you can draw sure. that bow, Gary. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's okay. It was great, and, and you know, in some ways, it was probably better for being a little bit. You know? Yeah, probably. You know, stuff at the beginning where you keep having a new main character and then you drop him and you realize somebody else is really the main character. It really didn't suffer for losing any of that. <laughs> Probably not, yeah. No. And there's a, um, but but still, it's about it's it's it's. I, in in the cut down version that you were teaching, it's still clear that this is not a supernatural monster. That this is made by Doctor Frankenstein, right? Yes. Yeah. So that's yeah. that makes it science fiction rather than just a horror story. Yeah, and the and the the, the fact that it's about, um, uh, you know, transgression through science, um, transgression, through modernity, through through mm -hmm. what is modern. Um, that, I think, really came through. The fact that it's about, really, you know, an abandoned child, that came through, very much so. What else did you learn about writing from your students? That's a good question. I think I learned something about um, sort of different modes of story and how some really work in writing a lot better than others. I remember at one point having students write down, just write down a story that they knew, just any story. So, you know, they wrote down stories that they'd heard. And one student, most people, you know, they did it as short as possible because it's high school and they just want to finish, yeah, you well. know. <laughs> but I had one student who really went with it and he wrote, you know, like 20 handwritten pages uh, in this little um, composition book of a, of a story, um, traditional story. And it, it just had tons and tons and tons of repetition in it. You know, they were constantly, you know, the same words repeated and the, the, the person going through something and then something very similar, very, like, it was very, it got, it got hard to read after a number of pages because it's just not, it's not a genre that, that writing, that really works in written form. I can see that. Um, and, and, and there's a, there's an argument to be made that when you, when you move into a written culture, your attitude towards stories begins to change. Um, and, and, and suddenly stories, for example, stories become fixed in one form, as opposed to stories that can constantly be reinvented for the current needs of the culture, uh, as yes. oral tradition. 
can can be. Yes, and that's very much um, something that I, that was at the heart of A Stranger in Alondria. That is something I was thinking about, thinking very hard about while I was writing the book. Was that relationship of you know mingling and also conflict, um, conquest between oral and written forms of knowledge. Well, yeah, because one of the questions that comes across very clearly, especially in the first half of the book, is, you know, is is is, is this teacher who who sounds more and more like you uh, really doing this kid a favor by by making him literate in the, in the in the in the sort of industrial commercial sense of literacy that that Alondria comes to represent? Yes, um, I think it's definitely a question whether or not. Okay, <laughs> like should I keep going? I think. Yeah, in in the book, it's a less pressing question in some ways than it was for me in my life because I was teaching English, yeah, um, which is a globally um, dominant language, and that is that is not the case in the book. In the book, you know, Jevic Jevic's um, island is not colonized by Alondria. He's, you know, they have a strictly kind of mercantile relationship, and that's where, you know, that was also um, me. Well, you know, that was that was fantasy. You know, wouldn't this be nice? Oh, yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if there was just this kind of, you know, relationship between these two very different places, and and you know, if one of them didn't actually colonize the other one, even though it would have had the power to do so. A laundry is not any particular city or culture, is it? No, not really, but it is a mixture of um, a lot of different uh, sort of experiences I had had around the time that I was writing. Before I went to Sudan, I went um, on a trip. Uh, I went through Southern Europe. So, you know, there's, there's I was in Greece and Spain, um, Italy, Turkey. Um, and then after that, because I was revising the book, um, while I was living in Egypt. So then Egypt also sort of got in there. So it has a, it's, it definitely is kind of a Mediterranean sort of place. It has that feel to it. Um, yeah. although, although the basic plot, and this is, this is something else that's just kind of occurring to me, the basic idea of a, of, a, of a, essentially a young rube from the sticks going to the big city is a classic American theme also. It's in Willa Cather, mm. it's in Pfizer, it's in... Um, Oh, I, uh, William Dean Howells. In other words, there's a lot of a very familiar. It's, it's even in. Um, I guess it's even in Truman Capote. There, there's a lot of yeah. this sense of. Well, I mean, that's essentially what happens to Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Is she she learns how to survive in a different culture from the one she was brought up in. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but that's absolutely true. And. As a fantasy, though, you can do anything you want to with it at this point, and uh, the fact that it turns into a ghost story, I think, will surprise a lot of readers. The other thing, oh, not which now. I think everybody is going yeah, to ask you, <laughs> yeah. but it certainly ends with uh, an open door for a sequel. Yes, it does. Deliberately so. Okay. <laughs> because, there, because there is one, you said so in the interview. You're working on one, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Um, it's, um, yeah, it is set completely in Alondria this time. So um, Javik is not, um, is not 
in the picture anymore um, and it's set among it's it's not it doesn't have that point of view of somebody who's coming from the outside and is looking at this culture for the first time it's from within that culture okay so that's a different point of view a different set of characters or some of the same well some of the same characters will have to be there um will they i don't know um <laughs> <laughs> maybe not i don't know no, 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 you're absolutely right. No, because because the prince, who yeah. is an important character in A Stranger in a Laundria, is also an important character in the second book. Mm. Yeah. H has the process of being pu published and having A Stranger in a Laundria published by Small Beer be anything, been anything at all like what you'd anticipated? That, that is a good question. I... Uh, you know, what had I anticipated? I just really did not have much of a clue at all about how these things work. Um, what I knew was that I love small beer books. Uh -huh. um, and I thought this would be a good place for me. And that has been absolutely true. I could not be happier um, with just sort of every step of everything that's happened from the cover to um, just the relationship um, with Gavin and Kelly um, as editors and and uh, all of that, it's just been absolutely great. So was it what I anticipated? I, I was hoping, I wanted to get this book into the hands of people who would get what I was trying to do and who would, um, and who would respond to it. And I think that that has happened. Yeah. Um, so I'm very, very pleased. I guess I partly ask the question because if you read the Locus interview as I, uh, w that you did with Gary, as I did uh, again this morning, it's, mm. it, it almost sounds from the shorthand in the interview that sort of you, know, you, you, you went away to um, you know, the Sudan and Egypt and you, you wrote this book which obviously changed a great deal during its lifetime there mm -hmm. and then sort of came back and just sort of like wandered in, stumbled over Gavin and sold your book and that was it. No agents? No No, connections. I still don't have an agent. Um, yeah, I mean, well, it kind of was like that, except that, you know, anyone can do it if they take 10 years to rewrite their book many, many times. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it, by the time I, I went up to Gavin at Wisconsin and said, you know, hey, I wrote this book, I had worked on that book a lot. I'd spent a lot of years working on that book. So what I gave them, you know, was something that I, I was pretty happy with and they were they were happy with it as well um but there were a lot of years in between yeah don't don't tell people that anybody can go away and spend 10 years revising a book i mean it can it can be a disaster when that happens <laughs> I've, I've known people who've revised a short story for five years and it comes out it started out as a good story and by the end of five years there's a scene in a Tim Powers novel i'm not sure which one it is uh, it might even be last call but there's a character who's isolated in his dark room for years and he's he knows all sorts of secrets and he's drawing these pictures and equations and things on the wall and the uh, somebody will have to correct me about exactly what happens in this because i know i'm misremembering it but people finally find their way to this room where all the secrets of this world are or this occult secrets are written on the guy's wall and of course the wall has been written over so much that it's almost completely black now and nothing can be made out at all that's what can happen to some people who revise for 10 years so depressing. <laughs> but it wasn't the case here, though. Wasn't the case here, though. You, I, no, I, I mean, I know that it, it. 
I improved it. I mean, for one thing, it's only half as long as it was to begin with. Which is always an improvement. Everybody else, yeah, anybody, any other novelists out there, it's always an improvement to make it shorter. (laughs) Mm, It really was in this case. But, uh, and, and you said that you don't think any of the missing material is 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 missing in the sense of the of, of it having been important, which nah, is no tragedies, no tragedies well, there's there. A, that's, that's a huge amount of self awareness and self discipline on the part of a writer to realize that half of what you've written in a novel doesn't belong there. Um, well, you know, again, I would say that it has to do with time. It has to do with the passage of time. You let enough time go by, and then you can look at anything you've written and go, "Wow, yes. that." gotta go you know um but you need it takes a long time to get that sort of detachment well that's that's the old journalism joke you know you say to the editor you know if you want a thousand words it'll take me a week if you want two thousand words i can have it this afternoon (laughs) (laughs) did you find with the stuff though that you wrote that isn't in the book you almost had to write some of it to find the shape of the book it had to be absolutely yes I was, I was finding my way. I was, I'd, I'd never written anything of this length before. I was, I was teaching myself how to write by writing. And so I had, I absolutely had to do it. And I was finding out about this, um, this place. I mean, I was exploring Alondria. I have, so, I mean, the, there's a huge, there are just pages and pages of journey of going to cities that we don't need to go to and finding out about all mm. the intricacies of little microcultures of these different cities we don't need that but <laughs> it is it is it is you know i believe that it is that it is there at some level and that there's a deep um level of awareness of of the world that i've created there that does i think seep into the book that there is and give it some kind of texture. I think it does. I think there's a sense that Alondria is, is real in the sense that Le Guin's Arsenia is real. I mean, there's, you know, it's situated in a place which is identifiable. It seems to have a history. It seems, and I, I enjoy novels in which there's a lot of history we're not learning about. Um, I suspect that there, we were talking a little bit about world building earlier, that there are at least a couple of kinds of world building. I don't know how conscious it is on the part of writers, but there are, well, I, to some extent I do. I know writers who construct a world as a franchise opportunity. In other words, if I des- define the lineaments of this world, I can get 12, 13, 14 novels out of it. And there are uh. other writers that think of a world as um, a setting for a particular narrative arc, and after that narrative arc is over, the world is more or less done with for that writer yeah i think i'm the latter i think i'm the latter type because yeah yeah, i and i i had always thought of you know two alondria books and who knows you know i may i may get ideas for more but but it hasn't changed and this has been i don't know like 15 years now um that i've that i've been thinking about this place and thinking about these two books and i really do think that it's that it's two. Um, there are a lot of things that I explore in the second book that um, that I did not explore in Alondria. And for me, a lot of the world building is, it's sort of like um, things happen or I, you know, things come into my head, like, I don't know. And a kind of alcohol that's made out of figs, you know? Mm. And it, yeah. 
then and people are drinking that and they're going on certain ceremonies and other things. And then I'm almost like, you know, I'm like Jevik. I'm that traveler who's who's thinking and figuring out now why do people do that or how did that how did that happen? How did it evolve that they do that thing or they have that particular ritual? So I explore that um, a lot more in the second book, but I also explore a lot of things that were sort of there on the surface in the first book, but that a, some an outsider wasn't necessarily going to pick up on them or somebody like Jevik wouldn't pick up on those things. Well, yeah, and one of the things that's fascinating about, about the, the one novel that exists is the extent to which Jevik is, well, literally a stranger in a strange land. There's a lot of stuff he doesn't understand, even at the end of the novel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and for me, you know, he's, because he's a student, and I was mm. a student, you know, he's, it, it's, it's that kind of thing where you learn one little thing about another place, and then you think that you understand it, and you're like, yes, you know, mm. I understand this place, or I know this language. But when you really test that, you find out what your limitations are very, very quickly. I'm tempted to say it's a difference, and I'm not being judgmental because there are different kinds of readers as writers, but it's a question of whether the story serves the world or whether the world serves the story. And if the story serves the world, then you basically, uh, you, can, you, can, you can do the wheel of time indefinitely. Um, mm. Uh, and, yeah. and sometimes, so, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm, I'm just thinking. Out well, loud. I was going to say when I when I think about what you've just said, you know, whether the story serves the world or whether the world serves the story. I think sometimes the world is the story, or the story is the world. You know, ah. the two hmm. are kind of they're they're inseparable, and maybe and and maybe this is sort of my ideal, not necessarily what I've achieved. But I think when those two things are so interconnected that you can't you know you can't even really make a decision about which one is serving the other I think that's that's probably you know my ideal fantasy novel well you, oh, okay that makes sense that makes a lot of sense so Tolkien and Peak of the stuff you read since you came back because I know you've been reading once you got back in the University of Wisconsin's Madison however you had time to read fiction in between getting a PhD, I don't know. <laughs> but what were you reading then? I, obviously, you were talking about reading Kelly Link and Jeff Vandermeer, and um, and, and I, I, would, I would guess Mary Rickard if you came across her stories. Oh, yes. Uh, um, and, yes, and Ricky de Cornet. Mm. Um, a name not familiar to a lot of genre readers. Oh my God, that was, she was just a huge discovery for me, huge. And there's an example, okay, there's an example of what I was talking about, about how it's not necessarily all about a change in the field, but it's also about being able to discover the things that you really like. Because right. she's been there all, all along. I just never came across, I was never in a, in a context um, to come across her work, you know? Um, mm -hmm. so she, that's, that's been absolutely fantastic discovery. Um, what have I been reading? Oh, uh, so many things. Um, Mirala Tahawi, who, um, is a young Egyptian writer. And I know I've, I've talked to you, Gary, about her book, The Tent, right. which I'm teaching right. this fall. I'm really looking forward to it. It's a, um, slim, very, very fantastical, beautiful novel. Um, so, she was she was an amazing amazing discovery for me. 
Um, I'm going to blank on other things now that you ask me. Um, but there have been a lot of writers also that I've that I've found that have been important to me in terms of you know that have been important to me that are not not, not because of the fantastical elements. Huh. And I mean, Miles is the biggest um, of those in in you know I'd say this year. Um, absolutely love her her work and and I think tore through all of it before I left Wisconsin. Um, who else? Well, you know what? I'm um, going to just take this moment. Can I Can I just plug a novel? Can sure. I just oh, plug a novel, sure. Because it's amazing and everyone should read it. And it is A Questionable Shape by Bennett Sims. Have you guys heard of this book? No. Is, this, no, is, is, book, is this a first novel? It, this is not a first novel. It's a first novel... It is from, oh, what's the press called? $2 Radio. Questionable Sheep. It is a zombie novel. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Sorry. God, let, let me tell you, you're going to read this book, and you're going to write me an email, or you're going to contact me on Twitter, and you're going to say, oh, God, yes. That's exactly what you're going to say. <laughs> I will okay. link to it in the, in the show notes for the podcast. And it's a 2013 book? Yes. Okay. I want to take just one minute to talk about Honey Bear because that's almost, it's a little bit surrealistic and a little bit grotesque, but it's much closer to being a science fiction story than A Stranger in a Laundry is. Yes. Yeah, it is. Um, and it's kind of, um, well, I guess I see it as, as being um, in, a, in a vein that is something that I've been doing, especially this year. I would put... Um, my story, uh, Selkie stories are for losers yep. that came out um, from Strange Horizons mm -hmm. early this year. That story. to me is is kind of thank you. That that to me is kind of in in the same group as Honey Bear. You know, a first person um, kind of broken into sections. And I have a story that will be appearing at some point in Lightspeed magazine called How to Get Back to the Forest. And that's another one of these kind of. Um, future or near future or some kind of weird weird future weird present um uh -huh. books that are that are yeah that are very in a very different um very different mode than a stranger in a laundry a very different tone different everything yeah well that's what's striking me is that it was very different they uh, this general category of stories which i don't even want to call them postal quite post-apocalyptic because um I, I think of them as something has happened stories, meaning mm -hmm. something really big has happened. Um, um, Daryl Gregory's novel Pandemonium is like that. Something has happened. Um, but mm. and, and, and the, the, the thing that struck me about Honey Bear, and I've not read the other story that you mentioned, is that it, it, it does have that sense of what, um, frankly, 50 years ago would have been a post-atomic story, that just the world is changing in unexpected ways. And mm -hmm. in the early 50s, there was a story by Carol Imswiller called Day at the Beach, which had the same basic premise. Uh, yeah. But back in the early 50s, you could assume that we didn't know what was going to happen through radiation or mutation or, or nuclear war. So that was used as a universal change principle. Um, any number mm -hmm. of mutants, telepathy, every, every, everything you want to write about in science fiction, well, it was caused by the atomic bomb. We knew that. We know we can't do that anymore, but we don't have to do that anymore because you don't have to write 
literalist science fiction in order to have a transformed world like the ones that you're describing in these stories. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I, that story was, was 100% inspired by um, Octavia Butler's story, Blood Child. Uh-huh. Um, I was just, I was, I was kind of absorbed and, and carried away by that story. Um, and then I wrote Honey Bear in two days, um, which is probably the fastest that I've ever written anything. And it mm. was just, you know, I was charged up with the energy of that Butler story and with this idea of, you know, um, family, what family is and what it means to have blood ties. And uh, yeah, that's what that story came out of for me. So I guess in, in that case, as far as I was concerned, that that world that I had made there was in the service of my story. So Octavia Butler is another influence. Yes. I, mean, yes. I, I think, I think, I think that Octavia Butler... want to say of somebody who was there all along. Another example of somebody that I missed. She wasn't in my Walden books, you know, when I was... When that's where the only place that I had to look, you know. Right. Um, and uh, by the way, I've taught Blood Child to students, and it's really interesting to look at the reactions you get, um, mm. because as Octavia herself had said on several occasions, a lot of people read it as a slavery metaphor, and uh -huh. in her in her mind, it's her pregnant man story, uh -huh. um, which is completely. But, but and, and both readings, you can support both readings very well. I've gotten very good arguments from students. Usually with men on one side and women on the other, but we shouldn't go into that too much. That's interesting. Yeah. But um, that and the other one, which uh, just we're talking, passing teaching notes back and forth, which you should be doing on the podcast. The other one, which works <laughs> very well with students, is speech sounds. Oh, yeah, that's a great story. Which is about loss of language, which is another theme yeah. that seems to me becoming more and more important among modern fantastic writers. Huh. Well, I mean, and, and certainly, I mean, encountering langu language is a influence in Stranger in a Laundry itself. The whole idea of encountering language. Mm -hmm. Yes, it is. It is. It's. It's one of my pet peeves is when I read a story in which, you know, there are people from totally different cultures and they just meet up and they start talking. <laughs> I'm like, how can you? What language are you guys speaking? How are you? You got to put something in there. You got to give me some little marker about. Oh, this is their. You know, this is the common tongue that everybody speaks. Something. Um, so I. So I'm so interested in language and in interactions between people who have different levels of the same language and who are managing and and the the pitfalls of that and the problems their communication falls into and the surprising. You know, sometimes um, exciting things that come out of. Um, the wrong word or the a mispronunciation or something like that. So so that that was a lot of what I was exploring and having a lot of fun with um, well, yeah. when I was writing yeah. a stranger in Olympia. No, I, I I I think it's in, in some ways there is um, whether you intended it or not a kind of critique of of facile fantasy and science fiction tropes. One of which is um, that, that that languages are simply Codes—they're not—they're not culturally bound. They don't necessarily imply mm. anything other than 
than meaning, you know, that uh, the, the, the old 1940s, well, you know, he was speaking in standard galactic, which turns out to be 1940s English, you know, <laughs> York. And, and the, the idea that language has all kinds of cultural connotations and all kinds of sort of pitfalls in it and, and, and traps doesn't occur to a lot of these people. Um, and, and language is more than just uh, coding, you know, it's, it's more than just coding. And I, I think one of the things that may have simplified the way people think about language is that if you begin to think of it as computer code, of course it's universal, but it's not. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's, it's culturally bound. Yeah. Well, one of the problems for Jevic is that he's haunted by a ghost, and there's no Alondrian word for ghost. Well, yeah, the good. It's, it's an angel, that's, which is another interesting that's idea. Right. That's one of his. That's one of his his big problems is that he can't can't express to people what he's going through because they don't have language for it. Mm-hmm. Interesting. It's just a fascinating. Uh, it's it's, a, it's there. There's a lot of that. That 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 I found the most fascinating part of the novel. As a matter of fact, was the whole way it tra- it treated the is- issue of language and culture, which is which Chip Delaney, which Samuel Delaney has also consistently treated in in, in um, not just in the very young stories, but in Babel Seventeen and any number of his stories, he comes back to the idea of language. And now, because we're coming to the end of the podcast, I guess I should ask Sophia, what can we expect from you next? Um, well, I I have, as I mentioned, a story that will be appearing in Lightspeed at some point. It's called How to Get Back to the Forest. Um, I have, what else do I have? Well, I'm working on a couple of things. One of them is that I'm revising the second book, the mm-hmm. sequel to A Stranger in Alondria. And the mm-hmm. other is that I'm working on a book um, about monsters oh, wow. with my younger brother, who is an artist. So he's doing the images, and I am providing the words. Fantastic. And we're not going to have to wait 10 years for Laundria 2, are we? You shouldn't, because, of course, I was working on it along the way. I mean, I didn't strictly work on the first one for all that time. That would have been miserable. <laughs> no, so I, you know, I distracted myself by writing a second book. So, yeah, yeah so it's it, it should... much further along. Excellent. And we, we should also recommend that people should look up Keith Miller's books as well, right? Yes. Yeah. Even though they're not really genre. I mean, you have a mixed marriage genre and non-genre. Is that what it is? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I, you know, let, let the readers decide. But they should well, definitely they, give them a try. That sounds I've not, okay. I've not read Keith's novels. But based on your descriptions of them, there are a lot of people out there. There are a lot of people sort of on the other side that don't necessarily see it makes any difference anymore. I mean, uh, Brian Evanson is one. He's uh, hmm. He's got a fairly solid mainstream reputation. He loves us. He loves to write an Alien versus Predators novel, for heaven's sake. Uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, everybody should look at Keith's novels as well as A Stranger in Alondria, yes. as well as the monster book with you and your brother. Yes, which, you know, that's still that's still very much a work in progress, but it's 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 what I'm what I'm excited about now, that and the second book. Fantastic. And will we see you at World Fantasy this year, Sophia? You will not, sadly. No, I will. Very sadly. (laughs) Not World World Con in San Antonio, possibly? No, just, you know, the new job, the move, it's just way too much going on. Next year at ICFA, since it's an academic convention and universities know that it's an academic convention, you have to be there. I definitely plan to be there, and I also really want next year to be my first reader con. I've never been, and if I can possibly get there, I will go next year. Fantastic. Absolutely. Well, 
Until then, many thanks for joining us, Sophia. We really appreciate it. It's been a wonderful conversation. And yes, we'll look forward to, to the upcoming work. Thank you so much. And Gary, I'll talk to you as always next week. We'll talk next week, as usual. When we will once again be the Mullers of Coot Street.